0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. And today I'm thrilled to have John Roth and Carol Rittner on the show. Uh, both John and Carol have been on the show before, uh, John several times, Carol once, uh, and both of them are longtime leaders in the field of Holocaust studies. Uh, And they've recently collaborated again uh, on a new book, uh, on a book that's maybe a little different than you're used to. It's called Advancing Holocaust Studies. uh, And it's a series of essays by leaders in the field uh, about how they became interested in the field and and how they've tried to move the field forward uh, and what the challenges and opportunities of the field are as it exists in 2020. It's a really fascinating book. Particularly in the context of, 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 of the world we're living in now. And I'm really looking forward to talking about it with them. So, John and Carol, thank you so much for joining me uh, and welcome back to New Books and Genocide Studies. Thanks for having us, Kelly.
1: Yeah, thank you for having us, Kelly.
0: So, John, I'll start, I'll, I'll ask you this question to start the, the interview. Um, your title talks about Holocaust studies. Uh, and so, maybe the logical place to start is to say, how you imagine what Holocaust studies is and and how you and Carol imagined it collectively and and how that field came to be.
2: Holocaust studies, I think we could say by this time in 2020 is an established uh, academic field of inquiry and teaching, Uh, but it has a long history by now. Um, The earliest studies of the Holocaust took place while the Holocaust was happening, even before it had the name that we give it now, the genocide that was being uh, wreaked against the uh, European Jews by Nazi Germany. The Nazis kept careful records about what they were doing in uh, annihilating the European Jews. And uh, the Jews who were their targets also kept records and wrote uh, diaries, uh, historical accounts, and a variety of things. And then, uh, after World War II came to an end, there were uh, trials that took place uh, at places like Nuremberg that also established a repository of uh, data and documents and evidence. All of these things became the material out of which the uh, academic field that we call Holocaust studies emerged. Uh, it was recognized by some people early on that the um, records that existed and the history that they uh, focused on uh, deserved further attention. And so people began to inquire, uh, to write, and in some very early rudimentary ways uh, uh, do what we now refer to as Holocaust education. The field of Holocaust studies uh, is both, I, I like to say, singular and plural. It's singular in the sense that Uh, holocaust studies is a field that focuses on an event that we call the holocaust and it is uh, uh, an academic discipline as as i mentioned but it's plural at the same time because uh, there are many different uh fields from the academic world that have something important to contribute to the field of holocaust studies Uh, holocaust studies is a field that depends on Uh, primary historical research, but it also includes uh, people like myself in philosophy, Uh, Carol, who works in religious studies, people who work in literature, people who work in uh, economics, almost any discipline you think of uh, has something to contribute to this field. So Holocaust studies is is a plural field in the sense that it can involve and needs to involve people from different uh, areas of academic life. And then the second way in which uh, Holocaust studies is plural, I would argue, and we argue this in the book, is that Holocaust studies um, leads to different interpretations of the Holocaust, different understandings of what the event was, how it should be regarded, uh, even uh, differences of opinion about some of the um, historical things that took place and how the uh, genocide unfolded so it's a rich rich field that continues to grow because we keep learning new things and uh, different developments in, in disciplines uh, affect this too give uh, one example the what we call the digital humanities uh, even dealing with what's called big data uh, these kinds of things are now having uh, an impact on the development of holocaust studies as a field of inquiry
1: I, I want to just um, come in on this discussion a little bit and say I echo everything that you've said, John. And uh, when you say it's singular and plural, I, that, that was a point I was going to make, that there are, there is no, it seems to me, no single discipline that one can call Holocaust studies. There are many disciplines that feed into what we understand as Holocaust studies. Now, I, I do think that, uh, the, that Holocaust studies, uh, there, there are some, some questions. For example, what are we talking about here? Are we talking about simply the period 1933 to 1945? Are we speaking about a longer chronological uh, period? That that would be one question that I think perhaps we could discuss a little bit. The second thing is, does Holocaust studies include um, the other victims of the Nazis? For example, non-Jewish victims, uh, the Roma and the Sinti, um, the the disabled, Uh, what Act, what are we all actually talking about in terms of victims um, of the Holocaust? Because although Holocaust studies, when we teach it or research it or write about it, we write about victims, perpetrators, bystanders, rescuers, helpers, etc. But who's the group we're talking about? Only Jews, or Jews and non-Jewish victims of the of the Nazis as well. So. What's the chronology, if I could put it that way? What, what's the period we're talking about here? And who are the victims? So
0: Carol, that you're, you're, the title of the book then is, is Advancing Holocaust Studies. So, so maybe I'll ask you to start to say something about how this book came up, came came to be. Why, why this project? Um, how did you initially imagine it? Did it change as it went along? What what did you want this book to do?
1: Well, I think the book came out of discussions that John and I had, and John really, I think, initiated the discussion. And we started to talk about um, what has been the effect of all of our work as scholars and teachers and writers uh, about the Holocaust. and. Um, We wondered this because, really because of the political and really the world situation that we find ourselves in. I mean, there is this notion that uh, the more we teach about the Holocaust, the more students study about the Holocaust, uh, perhaps the more effective um, will be efforts to uh, prevent such things from happening again. And yet, Never again, in a sense, to use a cliche, has become again and again and again in terms of of, of genocide. So th- there was this question of, well, what has what has all our work been for? And we presented the idea um, to uh, the uh, to the to Vicky um, Barnett when she was at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum as head of their program on religion and ethics, and we presented the idea because they were having, um, what, 20-year commemorations of the establishment of the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum, and we thought this might make a really interesting topic for um, the museum to look at, to invite scholars uh, to come in and discuss it. So it came from our discussion, a presentation to the uh, to, to Vicki and her colleagues in Washington at the museum. They, in fact, did have a one-day seminar and invited, but they invited like, I don't know, what was it, John, about 35 scholars that came to that. And it was like far too much to really have the kind of discussion that we were hoping um, might be Um, stimulated by our various questions about what what has all our work been for? And so we went to that that meeting and then John and I got together again, actually over Zoom and talked to each other. And um, we decided that we wanted to invite a smaller group of scholars from various disciplines to come together. And we were able to get um, a modest amount of money to be able to fund such an effort. And we had a seminar uh, of two and a half days in uh, St. Louis, Missouri. And uh, 12 or 14 scholars, I forget now how many came to that. And we had very productive uh, discussions. And it was out of that, really out of the seminar in St. Louis that, Uh, those scholars that we initially invited who had prepared for that two-and-a-half-day meeting what we called uh, conversation starters. And we discussed them, and then we critiqued and suggested to each other how we might expand our papers. They went away and submitted papers to us.
2: I want to uh, maybe just add a little bit to this because uh, there was a kind of sharp, uh, knife-edged, issue in uh, my mind and I think in Carol's that uh, drove this project. And uh, we had to encourage our participants to to tackle it. Here's here's the knife edge. Holocaust studies uh, has had a huge investment made in it. Uh, If we expand the notion to include Holocaust memorialization, Holocaust education, there's been a vast investment in this enterprise, and the investment has had some governing assumptions. Uh, one of which is that doing this is a good thing to do because it will tend to make the world a less punishing, less anti-Semitic, less abusive place. And yet, when we started this project, and the and as Carol said, it had its origins in the uh, 25th anniversary of the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. Uh, we, we were thinking about this in a world that one could say is going to hell in a handbasket. <laughs> Democracy is under attack. Antisemitism, far from receding, has had a resurgence. Racism is, is huge. All the things that, that people somehow Uh, assumed either implicitly or explicitly that study and education about the Holocaust would curb, it didn't seem to be happening. Um, In fact, one could even make the argument that study of the Holocaust, far from curbing antisemitism, had been been, uh, something that exacerbated antisemitism, because people resented the investment that was being made in Holocaust education and Holocaust studies. So uh, the question that we pushed to our participants, and and we had to work at this, is what do you think Holocaust studies is for? What do we think we're doing in 2020? We started this pre-COVID, but by the time the book had been uh, brought to completion, we were in the midst in addition to all the other stuff that was going on, we were in the midst of a, a global pandemic. So in that context, what do those of us who have devoted some of us our lives academically to study and education about the Holocaust, what do we think we're doing? What do you think, what do we think we're accomplishing? And that was the dilemma, the ninth edge that we wanted our um, participants in, in the book to, uh, to wrestle with.
1: Can okay, yeah. I just come in a, a moment on that, John? I, the, the other thing I think we wanted them to wrestle with was uh, to write their essays in such a way that it wasn't just, uh, if I could say, from the neck up. It wasn't just, uh, we wanted them to talk about uh, uh, talk about themselves to some extent and how they got into this and what Uh, what has impelled them to um, uh, really to devote their lives or as uh, as one might say to their action their academic careers to um, researching teaching about the Holocaust that was a difficult thing to do for some people because it felt unscholarly in uh, and we wanted them to combine if I could put it this way, the scholarly and the personal, to some extent, um, in, in their writing. And I think that, that all of the writers were able to do that uh, enriches the book and it gives us an insight, not only into the intellectual life of the individuals, but in a sense, it gives a little uh, window into each person's personal life. And how they got into this.
0: So that's a great uh, opportunity then for me, and I'm 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 going to ask you both uh, to talk a little bit about what you see Holocaust studies being for in a, in a moment. But but you're right. This is a really fascinating opportunity for readers to to get to know some of the people whose work they've um, uh, they've used and they've consulted and they've followed. Uh, You write one of those essays, Carol. Um, So I wonder if you could say a little bit about how you came to Holocaust studies and and why you think Holocaust studies is so important.
1: Well, uh, I mean, in addition to being a teacher, uh, I'm also uh, a member of a Roman Catholic order of nuns. I'm a member of the Religious Sisters of Mercy. and so, and have been, I have been a Sister of Mercy for more than 55 years, interestingly enough. And um, when I, when I, uh, years ago, when I taught in high school, I I only taught a few years in high school, but I did teach my students um, about Anne Frank. That was, where we had excerpts of the diary of Anne Frank that, that I taught my high school English uh, students, so I knew something about you know the Jews, World War II. Well, something about what happened to the Jews during World War II, but it did not really, if I could say, impact me as much as a book by Viktor Frankl called *Man's Search for Meaning*. Just really, I, it was like uh, being hit between the eyes with uh, with a hammer, so to speak. Um, so here I am, a young nun, uh, you know, somewhat uh, zealous and new and wanting to. And th- this was, uh, you know, the late 60s into the early 70s when so many things seemed possible. And I'm, I'm thinking and Vatican II had just concluded and uh, with a new a uh, relationship between Roman Catholics and Jews, and Nostra Tate and all of that. I'm speaking, of course, in a bit of shorthand here. But I when I read Victor Frankel's book, Man's Search for Meaning, the very uh, perhaps naive question that stuck that struck me was, well, where were the Christians? Why didn't Christians help these Jews who were being persecuted, hunted down, murdered by, uh, by the Nazis. That very simple question is still a question that impels me to keep teaching and asking the question about um, how, how do I, as a believing, practicing Roman Catholic Christian, how do I deal with um, situations where I know Uh, a minority a different religion a person who may be different in in many ways sexually uh, you know gender religion whatever if they're being discriminated against how do I respond and somehow the the gap between what I knew in my head and what I felt in my heart that that's continues to impel me to teach about the Holocaust, to get students to ask questions, for me to ask students questions. I mean, I I have to say, although of course I don't teach about religion per se in my classes, I am impelled by what I would say are religious questions, theological questions, questions about how to treat my neighbor, um, about, I mean, the very first major project I was ever involved in had to do with Rescuers, the book, The Courage to Care, the film, The Courage to Care. When so many baptized Christians in Europe were either standing by or contributing to the persecution of Jews, there was was this small minority of Christians, Protestant and Roman Catholic and Orthodox Christians, who tried to help and I wanted to know what made them different from those who stood by. So in a sense, that's what got me into this. That's what keeps me into this because I'm still, uh, as I said, I'm teaching, I I mentioned to you before we began, I'm teaching a graduate course on rescuers and bystanders. So the questions that originally impelled me still fascinate me, still cause me to question, to Go deeper. No, that's a
0: that's a a fascinating and, and a compelling story. And John, I wonder one of the advantages of this book is that you get to hear those kind of stories from, from a pretty broad slice of people who are practicing this field. I wonder do you have a sense, having had these discussions and read these essays, is, is there some kind of common set of experiences? experiences or common set of personal backgrounds? What what compels people to spend their lives studying this?
2: Um, I like to say, uh, because it fits my own experience, but I, I think it's true of, of others who contributed to this project, that um, I didn't find the Holocaust. Uh, the Holocaust found me. Something happened in, uh, in, a, in a person's experience that uh, made them feel like I need to find out more about what happened. In my case, uh, it would be uh, following the suggestions of a former teacher of mine who uh, just said to me one day, I think you might be interested in reading some of Ellie Wiesel's books. And since, as I like to say, I always did what my uh, teacher suggested when they told me to read something, I, I took that lead. and. Uh, this, this changed my life I, I found like Carol that the questions that were being raised in this case by the testimony of an Auschwitz survivor uh, um, affected me made me feel that I, I needed to find out more mm-hmm. one of the one of the really uh, and this sort of thing uh, crops up in in the other chapters in the book I remember that everyone who participated um, in the project was very moved by a description coming from James Young, who's the one of the great interpreters of Holocaust monuments and memorials. And uh, he told the story, it's in the book of uh, a, being a young man traveling in northern Germany on a rain-drenched night and he didn't know where he was going to stay. and uh, he ended up in the home of uh, some uh, some Germans who, uh, took him in, and uh, the the, uh, the man of the house uh, uh, later uh, showed James Young a uh, a memorial that had to do with uh, ship shipwrecked uh, Jewish refugees, um, and uh, there was something about this that uh, captured James Young's uh, imagination and vision and uh, put him on the, on the journey that uh, t- has taken him all over the world and made him the, uh, arguably the leading interpreter of uh, Holocaust memorials and monuments, which is also, to go back to an earlier point, part of Holocaust studies. Right. Holocaust studies includes the aftermath of the Holocaust and how people have thought about it. So nearly everyone in the book uh, talks uh, at some point, um, point about how they got interested in this and and what I would say is that um, people get into this field because of other people because of people they meet experiences they have in those meetings that needs them in one way or another to feel that they have to find out more and then they bring to bear on that feeling their expertise whether it's as a historian or in Sarah Horowitz's case as a scholar of literature, or uh, in the case of uh, uh, someone like Alex Alvarez, who is really primarily a genocide scholar but deeply immersed also in knowledge of the Holocaust, and he talks about how he, he grew up as a, the son of an Air Force U.S. Air Force person who was stationed in Germany. And how his
1: mother is whose mother is a German.
2: Yes. So the, the, the part of the richness of this book, as Carol has mentioned, is that there's this nice intersection and interface between the biographies of the scholars and the contributions that they have made to the field. And then their reflection on what is this for in a world that seems to be fraught and not a world that has just solved all its problems because people have been studying and teaching about the Holocaust.
1: Do you think, John, that uh, Holocaust studies will continue into the future or will it become a subset of a, of a larger um, genocide studies? In other words, a- as we, if we have fewer well, uh, witnesses, fewer survivors, fewer rescuers, fewer liberators to, tell, to give us personal firsthand stories, will will it become sort of like the american revolution or are there you know it's something in the past or are there questions that are so uh, deeply entwined in this study of the holocaust that no matter the number of years it will continue in a sense to to be on its own as a as a I mean, complemented, of course, by genocide studies, but but still a a major focus.
2: Well, if you take our book as, (laughs) excuse me, as as evidence about this, I think the contributors to our our volume on advancing Holocaust studies, and the title already suggests the importance of moving a field forward and improving it and making it stronger. that in spite of all the difficulties and the um, hard situations that we find ourselves in, in, the, in 2020 and beyond, there seems to be a strong commitment among this, this small group of people to con- continue the work. And, um, and then what's interesting is that as, as this group of people continues the work, they attract students and students get interested. And they don't do the same thing as their teachers, but there is a kind of perpetuation of the, of the field and, and the interest and the commitment to the importance of teaching about the Holocaust. But I, but I would add the, the following uh, caveat. I think that uh, one of the things that happened in our book is that as, as people reflected on what is Holocaust studies for in a world like the one we inhabit, now in 2020, there was a kind of appropriate modesty and even humility that emerged. The the sense that Holocaust studies and education can't save the world. It can't even begin to save the world, but it still is very important because it has uh, insights to share. It has uh, impacts that can be made that can affect people, students uh, for good in a a complex and dangerous world. And I I think this is the the thing that that I'm feeling that uh, I take away from the project itself that has been helpful to me. That is, I want to continue being a Holocaust scholar and teacher But I do it now, I think, with a greater sense of modesty and humility about what I can accomplish. And and just one more word on this, and then uh, Kelly, I know, may want to pursue this further. But the relationship between Holocaust and genocide studies, I think, is one that has moved beyond rivalry. And I'll say a word about that in a second to to a, a sense of complementarity. That is that we, we learn more about the Holocaust by being aware of, of how other genocides work. There's a kind of reciprocity of, of illumination that takes place as these uh, two things come together. Uh, Wolf Gruner's essay in our, in our volume is, is very good on this point. There was an earlier time, I think, when the emergence of a field that we refer to as genocide studies felt a little threatening People in Holocaust studies, because it seemed to be a field that was going to decenter uh, Holocaust studies as the you know the focus of attention. And um, what's happened is that uh, study of many genocides looms large and is very important. It hasn't displaced Holocaust studies as a field of importance and, and a discipline unto itself. Um, and there's plenty of atrocity and um, and horror to study for any number of perspectives and
1: approaches and people to work on it. And of course, one of the the things that um, the whole issue of genocide studies, Holocaust studies, I agree with you. There, there's a complementarity now, but there still is this question that comes up that some people, um, uh, I mean, they. They still believe that the Holocaust is unique, unlike any other uh, genocide. And I always like to think about um, Yehuda Bauer, uh, who uh, I suppose earlier on in his uh, academic career and thinking and study and writing about the Holocaust probably did call it unique, but now calls the Holocaust unprecedented. So that, that's one way that Holocaust studies, in a sense, has advanced. I mean, how we even think about the event in relationship to other events of, of genocide. What, what do you think, John? Am I on to something here or am I sort of?
2: I'm, I'm one who is um, uh, grateful for the fact that the advance of the field of Holocaust studies sometimes means that issues that were really hot at some point recede into the past and no longer are, are so important. And one of those, I think, was the so-called debate about the uniqueness or even the unprecedented quality of the Holocaust. I, I think it's sufficient to say, as Raul Hilberg uh, says in a phrase that I like, he says, whatever else you say about the Holocaust, it's one of the most drastic acts in human history. And that surely is sufficient to make it a, a, a subject of study. Um, there are other acts that are drastic, uh, too, but the Holocaust certainly looms large in that, in that category. And um, the, um, the magnitude of the Holocaust, I think, is one of the things that uh, when, when this history finds a person like me, that's one of the things that... Um, um, makes me want to find out more about how it happened, why it happened, and what the, and what the ramifications are. I think a, a big part of Holocaust studies is uh, the consideration of, of uh, what can be called the reverberations of the Holocaust. Um may be true of all genocides, um, but certainly the Holocaust has had uh, effects that have continued long beyond you know the Nazi era and uh, continue to um, echo in our in our
0: culture. So each of you have referred to this idea of what Holocaust studies is for, and I guess I, I depending how your your perspective, I'm either going to press you on it or I'm going to give you an opportunity. Um, But but I'd like each of you to say something and then I'll I'll, and, and maybe you'll invoke these or maybe I'll bring up some of the things your author said. But but what do you see Holocaust studies as being for? And maybe out of this conversation, is that something different than genocide studies or or are they, as you say, complementarity in goals as well as in subjects? So I don't know, Carol, I'll ask you to start and then you all can. Continue
1: from there. I'm, I'm just I'm I'm trying to think about that. Um, what are Holocaust studies for? Well, I think one of the things we used to think Holocaust studies was for was that uh, was it was uh, a kind of vaccine. It was something that would inoculate um, those who uh, uh, who study about it inoculate them against committing the same kinds of acts. But uh, we, we certainly, I mean, it, it isn't a vaccine and it does not inoculate. So what is it for? Well, I think it's uh, Deborah, Deborah Dwork who says um, to get more knowledge, we need to have more knowledge about this, um, this event, why it happened, how it happened, um, to whom it happened, who committed it. Uh, who was involved in it. Um, I think Holocaust studies is um, to make us think. It's for thinking. It's for thought. It's for reflection. It's for knowledge. It's for getting us to, uh, I mean, to refer to Deborah's essay again, she talks about the Holocaust as a compass, as something that guides her life. Um, I like that. I mean, it, it resonates with me. I have to say, uh, as I look at things today in our particular situation in this, um, in this country, in the political situation with the, the current um, administration in Washington, certainly the Holocaust it makes me think about how the administration treats immigrants Children, uh, how it um, refers to people who are differently able than I am. Um, it makes me think about the language that uh, the president uses in referring to people. It makes me think about how women are demeaned by some of the uh, by the president and um, and some of his associates. So. What's Holocaust studies for? I think it's to, it, it's to make us think. I mean, it's, I, I agree with John, it's not gonna save the world. We're, we're not messiahs, um, we're teachers. And I think that one of the things teachers have to do is to constantly challenge students to think more deeply and more clearly and to be able to articulate more clearly um, their position on, um, on issues and to think more deeply about them.
2: I, I would put a little uh, uh, edge on what Carol has said uh, and just say that uh, we, we, but we study the Holocaust because uh, it shows us that something went horribly wrong. We study it for ethical reasons. Uh, if if I can disagree with Carol slightly, uh, it isn't enough just to say that the Holocaust should lead us to think. Because one of the things we could think about is how to do it better, how to destroy people better, more thoroughly. So the thinking has to have an ethical component in it. It has to deal with what's right, what's wrong, what's good, what isn't, what's just, and what's unjust. And That's what Holocaust studies is for. I don't think it's worth very much just to have another historical account about things unless the history and the analysis is in the service of uh, what I would call an ethical orientation. things. Um, And I I think that if uh, at some basic level, and I think Deborah Dwork's idea of the Holocaust uh, as a compass is a good way to put it, if there isn't something like that governing the work that takes place, then uh, it doesn't uh, it doesn't cut much ice as far as I'm concerned. Uh, knowledge for knowledge's sake doesn't really, you know, cut it in a world of genocide. Uh, it has to have more of an edge, more of an ethical um, uh, uh, drive to it than that, at least in my view.
1: Well, I certainly agree with that. I mean, you've said it very clearly, and. Uh, much better than I could have said it, but i I agree. so i I stand not corrected but enriched by what you have to say. <laughs> it's good to be
2: quarreling with my good friend on this. of course, you know, critical thinking that's that's yeah. the thing where 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 the critical thinking is understood already implicitly to be uh, raising questions about is this right? is this not? Uh, what can we do to uh, protest and resist against the powers that would uh, destroy us if they had their way.
0: Yeah, I, you, each of you has talked about, um, and I've, I've never, I, I've read her work, but I've never talked to her. I think you pronounce it Dwarak. I'm not sure I've been listening to you. Dwarak. She, she talks Dwarf. about this and you cited this, that it in- increases knowledge. She, she put that as part of an interesting comment, right? That you have to increase knowledge, not just memory. And I wonder about how you see that juxtaposition or, or contrast about what it means to increase knowledge, not just memory of the Holocaust. And either one of you can start.
2: Yeah, I was looking back at her or her essay uh, just earlier today, and she has a, a, a couple of nice uh, phrases that I think uh, uh, amplify uh, what you're driving at in your, in your question. Um, She talks about rhyming rhetoric and then she talks about uh, the study of the Holocaust as providing an underlying grammar for helping us to understand current events. So the rhyming rhetoric part of it is where she in her essay talks about how uh, her study of the Holocaust and, and the deepening knowledge that she has as a historian about that event help her to to see what's going on in the rhetoric of Donald Trump. And the underlying grammar is uh, that point in her essay, I think is where she's suggesting that as her knowledge of the Holocaust goes deeper and deeper historically, she's able to see that there are are patterns, there are uh, similarities um, at work in the uh, threats to democracy that we see uh, taking place in our world. So um, I think I think that's part of what she's getting at when she says, no, it's really important to advance um, knowledge uh, where the Holocaust is concerned, which in her case would, would entail historical research, because the, the more she understands about what happened then, it gives her her compass for understanding and figuring out how to respond to what's happening in the present.
1: You know, what's very interesting about uh, Deborah Dwork's uh, essay is in the beginning, she she had a hard time writing this essay. She kept, I mean, we had many emails from her and I think her essay is uh, it's Well, it leads, it, it starts the book. It's the lead essay in the book. And uh, I think she has, um, I, I think the essay allowed her, if I could put it that way, to sort of bring together a lot of strands of what she was thinking about and even acting on it, even teaching about, but never quite put together in in precisely the way she did Uh, in her essay in this book and so I'm I'm really happy she kind of stuck with our process and in fact uh wrote the essay um so Mm
0: -hmm. yeah another one that stuck out for me was Wendy Lauer and Wendy Lauer has a number of interesting and important things to say in her essay the thing I would point to here is is her idea that um that you study, or that Holocaust studies are for, not as much to learn imperatives or injunctions, but to instill virtues, uh, and and maybe one of those virtues is critical thinking. I don't know, but how 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 did you respond to that when you when you read the drafts of her chapter and 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 maybe heard her talk about that? I think uh,
2: almost to a person, uh, the people who wrote in the book are nervous or uneasy about the often touted lessons of the Holocaust, that that somehow what you can can learn from the Holocaust can be um, encapsulated in a series of imperatives or uh, injunctions um, and that that that's what you are teaching to instill. Uh, An alternative to that is to suggest that what Holocaust studies and education can do in a person's life is produce a kind of uh, outlook or orientation that um, maybe the notion of the old-fashioned notion of virtues or, or habits of activity uh, in, in can can encapsulate. And one of those things would be, you know, critical thinking. Um, another might be um, uh, uh, increased. Uh, likelihood that uh, a person might act uh, in a way that resists, but is seen to be uh, injustice. Um, A a disposition might be, a a kind of character might be uh, in formation as a result of uh, a a deep encounter with this this history and and the reflection and testimony that has resulted from it.
1: Wendy also asks, um, or has a fear, maybe, um, which I think you, uh, uh, Kelly, brought it up in uh, in uh, one of the notes that you sent to us, a fear that as the Holocaust recedes in historical time, it will become less important to people, less riveting, less imperative, less moving. Um, and, and you asked us if we share this fear and... Um, I, I, I like what John started off with uh, when we started our conversation about um, modesty and humility in, in approaching uh, our teaching, our work on the Holocaust and what we've done, uh, what we've tried to do with. So, um, you know, when, when we think about what can we do about these fears, if we have these fears about the Holocaust receding, I, I think all we can do is, you know, we we make our modest contribution. We write, we lecture, we do podcasts, we talk about these issues. Um, we try to leave a little something behind um, with the hope that at, at some point, at some point people will read or watch if we're involved in documentary films or um, you know, if we've recorded lectures that they'll watch and listen to the lectures and think about them, discuss them. But um, I don't really have a fear that, um, that the Holocaust will become less important or less riveting. I mean, I find just even with these 15 graduate students that I have, they really do try to engage questions about the, the ethical questions really john that uh, that um that you sort of indicate not sort of that you indicated we ought to um be focusing on a, as we teach and study about the holocaust
2: wendy talks about something um in uh in her place of work which is in uh, claremont mckenna college in california where, where i used to teach she uh, heads a a center for uh, human rights there. Uh, But more than that, she's been one of the leaders in creating a consortium of uh, uh, Holocaust and genocide and human rights uh, centers, uh, institutes on campuses around the country. And uh, one of the things that has resulted from that, even in the COVID times, is that uh, students are energized to find a, a good interface between their academic studies on the one hand and their social activism on another. And this is one of the things that Wendy wrestles with in an interesting way in her essay. How do you find what is the balance, right balance, between uh, serious scholarly commitments to research and publication on the one hand, and teaching on the one hand, and on the other hand, um, you know, working with students who want to be involved, want to be engaged, want to, you know, make a difference in a practical way in their lives. And I, th- I think this is one of the hopeful signs for me that uh, students who study the Holocaust or other genocides, I think one of the impacts it has on them very often is that they want to do something. Mm-hmm. And these uh, centers and institutes around the country are providing opportunities mm-hmm. for students
0: to find an outlet for those uh, impulses. Yeah, can I follow up on that? Because So so there's a set of students who are undergraduates who I think often respond that way. Graduate students in fields other than theology or philosophy are often trained in a particular methodology that talks about being objective and... um, uh, treating removing yourself in some sense from the material you're studying how both of you have trained graduate students how do you try and help your students develop the kind of virtues that wendy refers to at the same time as they're trying to develop a kind of skill set around scholarship and research um, that's that's maybe separated from that How, how have you tried to do that and I don't know, Carol, you can start
1: well one of the things I would say is uh, now I have some really wonderful students at Stockton University, and they're eager, they work hard, of course, I you know I sort of <laughs> get my whip out and you know I, I, I use my whip a bit, but I, I find the students um, working. I would not say that the majority of students that um, I have taught at Stockton are, they're not the Harvard, Yale, Princeton variety. They're just good, hardworking. Sometimes they're teachers uh, who who are mandated in the state of New Jersey to teach about uh, the Holocaust and other genocides and they they want knowledge and they become quite interested in the field. And they don't tend to have the kind of, um, shall I say, intellectual distance from their subject matter um, that that perhaps you're referring to and what you were saying about methodology. Um, I'm not saying all of them. I mean, we've sent students on for doctorates, but um, they tend more to be um, practical. Um, they they do, like I have a student uh, this semester who's actually in gerontology, and um, she's uh, taking the course, and she is preparing a commemoration for Kristallnacht that comes out of her study on the Holocaust. Now, it's not the kind of activism of say, you know, uh, Black Lives Matter or Me Too or whatever, but it's still a, a desire to um, to do something in the community and with a, a particular audience to help people to understand a little bit more this event of the Holocaust and how it impacts their lives. So, you know, I I, I can't say that I well, I can't say anything more about it at the moment than that. Maybe John, because he taught a different uh, kind of student than I think I I taught at Stockton.
2: I think my my hope in uh, in teaching um, about the Holocaust and other genocides was uh, never that I would uh, primarily produce other uh, scholars, but that uh, what the students were encountering and learning might inform uh, the work that they would do, whether it was to whether it was becoming a business person or becoming um, um, a physician or a lawyer or teacher or whatever it would be. Um, this is something hard to measure, um, but I i I've, I've seen it happen. Um, And I would add one point to this. I think one of the things uh, that uh, an immersion in uh, Holocaust studies or genocide studies uh, may do is it may alert uh, people about things that they ought not to do. Because uh, sometimes the things that we refuse to do or don't do. End up being as important as the things that we do do, and um, so in that way too, I think a study of these uh, mass atrocities has a kind of uh, ethical uh, component to it that can can be um, grown in uh, students uh, and have an impact on the way they lead their lives wherever they may be. That's my hope, I guess. Yeah.
1: Well, well said. No, very well said. I, I think one of the things that I hope um, that I will encourage students—that I encourage students to think about and to reflect on and and to try to enlarge—is that question: um, Who is part of my universe of moral concern? Uh, you know, um, and of course, in a course like rescuers and bystanders, that's like a major question and. very interesting to me um that you know some students have uh, their uh universe is quite inclusive and for others it's very constricted it's uh it's my family it's my girlfriend my boyfriend whatever the the people I know and um I don't know that I that uh, you know, I haven't changed their minds to be more inclusive, but I, I hope I make them critically think and as John said, ethically think about this issue of um, who is part of my universe. If 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 someone um, asks me to help and their lives are, their life is really in danger, will I help? And it's it, it's quite interesting to get the response of students on this. Some are immediate, and of course, one of the things I said, you know, they always ask, "Well, what would you do uh, during the Holocaust? What would you have done?" And I said, "Listen, I don't know. I can only say what I hope I would have done." But I said, "We get an idea about how we would have behaved then by how we behave now, and whether we respond." when people are in need and I think you know today when we look at what's happening on our borders, what's happening um, you know to immigrants, to black people, to people of color, um, the questions that come up in, in studying about the Holocaust and in Holocaust studies do affect our students and their lives and so I think John that what you've said about You know, what you hope is uh, not so much that you've trained scholars, but that you help your students to think about how they live their lives and how studying about the Holocaust influences how they live their lives.
0: So, our time is growing short. So, I I would ask each of you, and I'll I'll start with John and then Carol, you can chime in. Um, A number of your authors talk about how they either have participated in like Sarah Horowitz and, or, or Alex in terms of expanding the interdisciplinary nature of Holocaust studies or how they've observed Holocaust studies advancing, what would you say, what will, over the next five or ten years, what will advancing Holocaust studies look like? What, what, whether this is your own personal view or the conclusions you came mm-hmm. from to from reading the book, what does advancing Holocaust studies look like to you in the next decade? And John?
2: Well, I think um, one thing to say, maybe the most obvious thing is that uh, historical research about the Holocaust will will continue and we will uh, learn things that we didn't know before as people uh, explore, um, particularly if they can get back into the archives um, in a post-COVID period. Um, One of our contributors, uh, Rob Ventresca, at the time that he was working on the essay, was about to set off for Rome to uh, have a look in the newly opened Vatican archives that deal with uh, the reign of, of Pope Pius the and you know COVID prevented him from from doing that work. But but one of these days he'll get to do that, and we'll we'll learn some things that we didn't know before. So that's one way in which Holocaust studies will advance. The historical knowledge will continue to grow and um, and go into areas that you know, we haven't explored completely uh, in the past. I think the other thing that uh, has happened and I hope it will happen some more is that um, the fields that Holocaust studies uh, incorporates um, may expand. Sarah Horowitz's essay is especially good on this because she represents um, Um, entries and and contributions to Holocaust studies that she had to fight to make. Uh, One of them had to do with the importance of literature, study of things like poetry as a way of increasing our understanding about the Holocaust. And uh, she also points out in her essay how difficult it has been until fairly recently for uh, gender studies perspectives to have a, a place in the field. So I think um, there are going to be further developments that are going to take place here. I'm guessing one will have to do with a closer uh, cooperation and interface between Holocaust and genocide studies. Uh, And a second thing has to do with uh, uh, what we're able to do with the use of uh, digital capacities to, to get at things, ranging all the way from access to archives, that it becomes more easy that way, to things like um, uh, technological capacities to investigate the sites where the Holocaust took place. It's a really interesting um, scholarship that's been driven by uh, kind of technological excavation, one could say, of the places where the Holocaust took place. So there are all sorts of frontiers that are are to be uh, explored and accessed that um, will happen. We may not even know what all of them are um, until somebody becomes a pioneering person to go to the next stage.
1: I, I don't know that I can add much to what John has already said, but I hope that one of the ways that Holocaust studies will advance is that we will not lose sight of the fact um, that we, we need to explore the relationship between uh, Christians and Jews. That um, at, at the very beginning of our discussion, we talked about how other disciplines come in complement uh, uh, complement and are part of Holocaust studies. And of course, Theology and religious studies. I mean, that's a great part of our study of the Holocaust. As um, John and Richard Rubenstein, in their book *Approaches to Auschwitz*, um, have said, you know that um, you know anti-Judaism in Christian theology was not the cause of the Holocaust. I'm I'm probably not quoting as well here as they said it, but certainly anti-Judaism in Christian theology prepared the seed ground that, that helped to make the Holocaust um, possible. And um, I mean, we're still hearing, in, at least in the Roman Catholic Church, I haven't, of course, been to mass in a church since probably the end of March, but I follow it on online um, and uh, the readings of the of the scriptures, for the most part, like we just finished reading uh, the Paul's letter to the Galatians, no explanation about the context of it, and the Jews are, and Judaism. I mean, it's clear that Christianity is replacing um, Judaism. So I hope that we won't lose sight of. Um, teaching about anti-Judaism and Christian theology and how it helped to prepare the seed ground and that we won't just, you know, teach the history of the Holocaust, but we'll teach some of those ramifications and and other aspects uh, uh, about the Holocaust. That's how I hope that we will advance and that Holocaust studies will advance in the future.
0: Well, this has been a fascinating discussion and I'm sorry to hear it and have it end, but um, but but it needs to. But before it does, um, I always end the same way. And I would ask each of you and John, you've been on several times, you may be running out of influential books, we'll see. But, but to suggest for the audience and just maybe for me, as I look at the stacks of papers to be graded this weekend, <laughs> um, a book or a documentary or a movie or something that, that's been meaningful to you that you would recommend to the audience. And Carol, you can start. some. John, okay. Will finish. Well, I
1: have uh, I have two books. Perhaps you've already read them. Um, I love Timothy Snyder's little book on uh, on tyranny: Twenty Lessons from the 20th Century. I really think we ought to teach this in uh, in our, our our classes. And the other book that I'm Uh, um, I think it's excellent, is Benjamin Carter Head, The Death of Democracy, uh, which I think is a really important book. And on the positive side, I hope you all consider me too immodest. Uh, If you've not seen the film that I had a hand in, The Courage to Care, about non-Jews who rescued Jews during the Holocaust. It was made in 1986 and uh, was actually nominated for an Academy Award. We didn't win it, but it is a wonderful film, not because I was involved in it, but because of the people it talks about. So they would be my suggestions. Wonderful. And John?
2: Yeah, um, just to echo um, Timothy Snyder's uh, little book on tyranny, I think it's a good example of what the the work calls the use of the history of Nazi Germany as a kind of uh, compass or um, prism uh, that helps us to understand some of the things that uh, we're facing today. But I have three uh, real quickly. um, One is more of an author than a particular text, but I think in our times, and as we think about the issues we've been raising today, uh, almost anything by Albert Camus is worth reading, especially his novel, The Plague, and uh, his uh, essay called The Myth of Sisyphus, uh, which is a kind of uh, compass for me as I go about my work. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer um, published, uh, well, he didn't publish, he wrote, later it was published uh, an essay that he did uh, called After 10 Years, which was a kind of brief retrospective, 20-25 20 to 25 pages. He wrote just for for friends of his to read um, about the period from 1933 to 1942. Um, this essay has um, been reprinted recently in a, a volume compiled uh, and edited by Victoria Barnett. It's it's simply called "After Ten Years," and uh, we're coming up to after four years, and. Uh, Bonhoeffer's reflections uh, have meant a lot to me as he he looked back on the 10 years that he experienced uh, under Hitler. And then uh, last, but by no means least, there's a very nice collection of um, essays, some some of them previously published elsewhere, but now compiled uh, in a volume called The Anatomy of the Holocaust. And this contains uh, essays by the uh, very important Holocaust scholar, Ralph Hilberg. Um, And these are readable essays. They're uh, very insightful. Um, Hilberg is a hero of mine as a a writer because he wrote so compactly and so um, much in an understated way. But uh, when you read between the lines as well as uh, in the words that he actually put on the page, There was a deeply ethical commitment that was driving his scholarship. And uh, he doesn't speak about the ethical commitment too much, but you can feel it. You can sense it uh, uh, in his uh, uh, kind of low-key,
0: understated, but impassioned scholarly writing. Those are wonderful recommendations, and I'm sure my students will not mind not getting their papers back so that I can follow them up. Um, (laughs) We've been talking with Carol Rittner and John Roth about their new book, Advancing Holocaust Studies, published by Routledge. We are taping now in the middle of October. I cannot tell the audience what exactly will be coming next time, but I will be speaking Uh, soon to Laura Robson about her book about the Middle East. I will have a short series of podcasts about um, the Indonesian genocide and attempts to think about justice with that. Uh, And I will also be talking uh, with an old graduate school colleague of mine, Laura Hilton, and her co-author about a book recently published about how to teach the Holocaust in secondary uh, and university settings. So those are all coming up. And I hope you'll be back for then. But until then, uh, John and Carol, thank you so much for bring, being with me. And uh, and I wish you a healthy and happy and safe um, rest
1: of the fall. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.